Hey there, listeners. I had a great conversation with a gentleman by the name of Chris Corwell. Chris is the CEO of United Renewables. It's a leading renewable energy developer and a clean tech investor. Prior to founding this organisation, Chris was an investment banker and a corporate lawyer. He also is the host of a podcast called Conversations on Climate. So check that podcast out. Hey, look, I had a great conversation with him. Chris is based in Dublin, Ireland, and we had really, really cool discussions about leadership, about change, and about climate. And the title here is called Work Out Your Purpose First. And we talked about that a little bit, and Chris shared some things around that. We also talked about exercise and how it's a therapy, but it also will give you more energy if you're doing some more exercise. He talked about leadership lessons from an early age and then about going into meetings and assuming things and it's actually more important to be right at the end of a meeting rather than the start of the meeting. We talked about, or Chris actually talked about, the fact that leaders have blind spots and we all do, all leaders do have blind spots. And then towards the end he shared some items around the future and things with AI and chat. GPT and so forth. Really, really interesting discussion. So, I'm going to encourage you to sit back and enjoy the episode. Here we go. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Leadership is Changing podcast. Great to have you here with us. I've got a great guest with me today. His name is Chris Corwell. Chris, a massive welcome to you. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here. Awesome. Now, for our listeners' sake, Chris, whereabouts are you in the world today? Right now, I'm calling to you from uh, Dublin, Ireland, where it is a beautiful sunny day, although it's now quite late for me, so the sun's going down. Yeah. Okay. All good. Now, Chris, I've given a brief introduction to you with our listeners. Tell us more about your background. Sure. Okay, I started out my kind of professional career as a, as a lawyer. Well, actually, before that, I did undergrad in business economics. Then I did law for a few years because when you do business economics, you're not really sure what you want to end up doing with your life. So it was either that or, or consulting. So I went down the law side. That was really interesting for a couple of years as well. But then I got the chance to do a three months of comments in an investment bank and ended up standing, staying there for 10 odd years. Investment banking was a really interesting career, really interesting time in my life. But after 10 years, the thought occurred, well, is there not more to life than this and chasing kind of quarterly earnings and quarterly profits and just you're trying to make, trying to make money for folks and you know, yourself and, and others, of course. So I uh, took the time during the great financial crisis to kind of step off and go and do an MBA on business school. Went in as an investment banker, came out the other side as a, as a founder, entrepreneur in the renewable energy and sustainability space, and have been there for, for 10 years now, and it's been the uh, best decision, you know, best decision I ever made. Oh, very good. And tell me something as well. I, I see that you're also somebody who loves to spend time with the family, exercise, volunteer. Tell us more about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. proud parents, exercise. I think exercise is more, it's kind of my therapy. 
it's being an entrepreneur, being a founder, being a, being a found man, it is, there's so many demands in your time, so many stresses, you know, no matter which, which way you look, there's always somebody, you know, trying to, and also you know, being in climate and environment, it's a fundamentally stressful, stressful place to be. So to try and again, take you know, to the, the theme of taking a pause and having a think, that's where I go. And that's where, where I get out of my, my head and just try and kind of leave it, leave it all out there and you know, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that. Yeah. And what kind of, when you say exercise, you do that in nature, do you, what, what do you actually do? Yeah. Combination. Um, very much enjoy long walks, runs. I used to run marathons, less so now, but it's really kind of going in and just lifting, lifting as heavy weights as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly. I think I find that very therapeutic, very cathartic. Oh, awesome. I think that there's a lot of people in business today who don't do this, who don't take time out to, to do that kind of activity, exercise, even just going for a walk and things like that. Especially when we went through pandemic side of things and so forth, a lot of people working from home, sitting on their butt all day and not getting out and doing some activity. And for some of those who had those smart watches and that show the number of steps, it would be amazing to see 1,200, 1,600 steps for the day. And you're like, what? So why is it important for people to be out exercising all the time, especially for those who are in business where there's a lot of stress and so forth? Yeah, it's, it gives you time to think, time to pause, time to, to reflect. It's very easy to be caught up in the, in the spiral of everything, of the continual questions that are thrown at you and the continual decisions you need to make. It's a time to kind of to take a step back. And it's when really kind of wisdom comes where in your quieter moments. And frankly, it also gives you energy. If you are just running yourself down, if you're, well, it sounds like something that you're expending energy on and it's a waste of energy. It isn't because if you get fitter, you get stronger, you take time, you take time out from your day to look after yourself, to try and focus in, in on what's important to you and your, your own health. Tomorrow, you're going to be a little bit better. The day after you're going to be a little bit better. Rather than just letting yourself get into a spiral of never exercising, not looking after yourself, you'll get slowly, it's like one, like fraction of a percent on a daily basis, just be going down and your performance will be going down. You want to turn that curve, bring it back up again. So that a little bit of exercise, a little bit of health, a little bit of eating well, sleeping well, that will allow you to bring your best self to work. And that's, and you, you have to bring your best self to work. If you're a leader, your team needs you, your customers need you. You need to be, you need to do that. It's, it's not for yourself. It's not a selfish thing. It's for like your family needs you. It's if you look after yourself, you'll be around for the long term to look after other people, including your employees, your customers, your family. It's actually, uh, I'm really glad you just shared all that with us because it's really important here, listeners, for, to hear what Chris is saying is that be your best self, self at work or as a leader, you need to be really out there doing this kind of stuff. It's quite interesting, Chris, because it's sort of like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's sort of like the opposite. People think, oh, I don't have time and things like that, but it's actually going to help you use your time better because you're going to get a lot fitter, breathe easier, think clearer. It's, it's really amazing how that, mm. that all works. But I'm reading a book at the moment called Outlive, and it's about exactly what you just talked about. It's about exercising, doing a whole lot of stuff to really not just live a lot longer, but have a good quality of life longer. Because as we start to get into our 40s and 50s, we start to deteriorate in our body and things like that. And if you're not out there doing this kind of stuff on a daily basis, or even if it's three times, four times a week, we start to actually start having problems in the future too. So it's really, really, really quite cool. So the book is called Outlive. And if you haven't, check it out, listeners. It's a, it's a really cool book. Chris, talking about energy, you just said before about helping you, you build yourself on that energy, so, so forth. You're the CEO of an organization called United Renewables. Tell us about your organization. Sure. Well, first off, thank you. I've put down Outlive now on my reading list. So I'll be, be jumping on now. Uh, actually, my local bookshop 
afterwards and trying to get it rather than going for one of the the, lar- the large named after Brazilian rainforest type of producers. So United Renewables is a, so when I left kind of business school and started out uh, United Renewables, actually at, at the time it was at Causeway Wind, Causeway Winds, and I went out to raise a little bit of money, well, a little bit of money. I went out to raise, to raise five or 600,000 pounds to build you know, a single, single stick wind turbine in Northern Ireland. And as it turned out, I was really successful and ended up getting kind of five and a half million pounds like very quickly. And it's, it's, it was great. It was wonderful, but it's created a little bit of pressure because <laughs> a little bit of pressure was, well, suddenly I need to be building lots and lots of things. And on paper, it looked pretty straightforward to be, to be building wind turbines in Northern Ireland because the legislation was there, the people were, were behind it. It's looked like, well, good. But then you got there and the reality was a bit more difficult. It was a bit different. So we ended up having to, to do a whole series of kind of planning appeals to have to get the planning legislation fit for purpose. We ended up having to work with the grids, try and get them to understand how to work with the distributed network rather than, than the kind of single point-to-point generation that they were dealing with before. So it was a lot of work, but anyway, we, we ended up really playing a big, a big role in transforming the energy system in Ireland. And from basically zero, we're now up over kind of 56, 57% of all the electricity from, from renewable energy. Not all us, but, some of the, but the groundwork that we laid was very helpful to everybody who came along with us to be able to build that up. So we've got a lot of expertise in how to make an energy system work from like working with the local population, working with all, with all of the stakeholders, working with local governments, uh, working with, with national governments, working with, with the planners, with the, the grids, everybody that you need to, to try and make a community greener. And we're trying to take that expertise to other, other parts of the world now. So we're trying to, we're, we're kind of moving across project dotting, particularly island nations dotting around the world. That's our, our speciality. We still do other types of, it isn't just wind now, we do solar, we do anaerobic digestion, we do, we do storage. And we also do kind of do larger projects on a kind of case-by-case basis. We've got, got a big solar project in Scotland, so for instance, 300 odd megawatts. So we're a renewable energy developer and problem solver. Yeah, good. I love it. And in New Zealand here, we've got quite a few sort of wind farms here as well. But, you know, it's sort of quite interesting how long it actually takes for wind farms to actually come about here. You know, it's more the... The red tape, the the government regulations and things like that. Eight years to get approval for one. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. We t- we try to go in and we try to because when we when we arrived in Northern Ireland, all of the legislation was there on its face to say yes, we're in favour. But when you get down to the local authority level, there was a, a habit that said no, we don't. We're not allowing building of large vertical structures in 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 rural areas, which you understand because you don't want skyscrapers in the middle in the middle of the countryside. But wind turbines are different. They're not, they're not skyscrapers. But the habit was, no, it's large vertical. We don't want it. So we worked with them. We helped. We cajoled. We kicked. We did whatever we possibly could to try and make the system work. So we did, we did 21 different planning appeals to try and get people who were saying no to fall in line with, with the actual legislation. And we won 20 and we drew, we drew one. So now it is a lot quicker process. It's a, it's a, a lot more smooth. What you need to get across the line is a presumption that wind turbines are a good thing, that you need to have a really good reason mm. to turn it down. And if, if you have that, that is posed in your, your legislation, you can get things built. So Scotland are great at it. Northern Ireland are now, now very good at it. Parts of the world, like England, not, they, they don't have that presumption. So anyone can stick up their hand and say no. And it sounds like it's the same in New Zealand that people can stick up their hand and say no and slow it the whole way down to eight years. And we don't have another eight years. We're under, we have, with the way that, you know, you have a look around the world, the way that climate crisis is affecting, you know, Hurricane Ian wiping out kind of Florida, Bahamas, 
third of Pakistan underwater last year. Heat waves in England, forest fires in Canada, making New York, you know, like scene from Mad Max, like just insane stuff, like stuff you couldn't imagine 10 years ago. Now all happening, we don't right. have eight years to be, to be waiting. So people like us need to be trying to, to working with governments and working with local authorities to try and get these things built and these things built quicker to clean up our environments right. as quickly yeah, as we can. Good. Now tell me, leadership, how did you get into leadership? Interesting. It's a really good question. I was, was thinking about this from when you initially asked it. And I need to go back quite far. I'm lucky that I've got kind of forward-looking looking parents. And at the age of like 14, 15, they sent me across to England for a summer camp. And the summer camp was a kind of European Union, European community as it was at the time, initiative where lots of people from the age of like 14 to 18 were, were stuck together in a kind of social experiment where you're all, all sitting, all engaging, all trying to understand each other. And I was, was, sitting, was sitting in that camp and... I just naturally was leading conversations and I just was trying to persuade. I was the guy that, and the guys were, that people were looking to. And it, it really kind of opened my mind that that particular experience at a, at a young age, kind of like challenging my kind of preconceptions from being someone who was like born and ra raised in Dublin, hadn't had a huge amount of experience of living and breathing with other people to, to be in there and for people to be looking at me. And I was also one of the younger people there as well as, as someone that had the answers or at least should be listened to for the answer for possible suggestions was, was really quite, was really quite interesting. And I, I picked up some, some really good leadership lessons from that. Even at a very, very young age, I was one of the games that, that they set out for us, where they laid a whole series of traps for you to come to, come to certain assumptions and, and they also made a series of assumptions on your own preconditions and, you know, naturally at the age of 15, kind of walk straight into them. And I was, I was at the front of the room, you know, making these arguments and I went, no, no, actually. You, you made assumptions and the, your assumptions are wrong. And, like, and this is why it's wrong. It's like, well, okay, mind, mind blown moment. So the lesson that I learned from that was one, like don't assume if you can always try and analyze. But two is your job, because I was, I was ignoring people because I was sure that what I was saying was right. I was 15, give me a break. <laughs> but one of the, the great lessons I've taken from, from that time, times now, is your job as leader is to be right at the end of the meeting mm. and not the start. Far, far too many, I was, I was sure, and I was, uh, my job was in there, was I had all the answers and I was sure I was going to make sure, I was going to persuade everybody, hammer everybody down, make sure I'm right. But actually, no, if I had just listened and embraced what, what other people were saying, we would have come out to a different conclusion and it would have been far more aligned with, with what the exercise was. And it's something that I've, I've taken, taken from, from forevermore into yeah, my career. I, I love career. that, you know, so it'd be right at the end of the meeting, not at the start of the meeting. I, I really like that. Yeah, it's amazing how sometimes leaders do assume things and, and they do, do walk straight into things too, as you say, even though it doesn't matter what age. And then, you know, I, I sure was, I'm right. I'm always, I was right, right? There's a lot of leaders even today, they're not kids anymore, but they still think they're right. Or they think they need to have the answer all the mm. time. And they don't. They need to just make sure that they surround themselves with the right, the right people who can help them with the answer. Yeah, for sure. That's the difference between a, a leader and, and a dictator. Like some people just see themselves as always needing to have the answer and, and going out there and saying, I, like, I, I'm the all-knowing, all-powerful being, and I will tell you what to do. And you go, you go and execute it. That's, yeah, you may be right a lot of the time, but you'll always, no one has all yep. the answers. You'll always have blind spots. Everyone has blind spots. And so, and you need to listen to a team and have a diverse team with different ideas, not just mini-me's all, all around you to be able to try and get to the right decisions, try and, try and to be understanding. Yeah. To ultimately, to give you the best, the best shot yep. of uh, your decision being right. 
Now, Chris, yeah, here's yeah, a question you... for you now. This person could be alive or from history. Who's your favorite leader and why? Yeah, it is a brilliant question. And it's a question that I would answer with different people, depending on my state of mind or with the right. questions I've been trying to answer during the day. But for for now, and also with the frame, what we just been, just been talking about, the guy who springs to mind is my former. So I mentioned that I went to went to business school. I uh, went to uh, London Business School, and the dean at the time was a guy by the name of Sir Andrew Linkman. Wonderful human being. He is a he's was leader of London Business School, and he transformed it. He changed it from he 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 expanded all the programs. He expanded the campus. He expanded the people in there. Made the number one business school in the world by the FT rankings. Also main board director of Barclays Bank. Knight of the realm for his tied time at Majesty's Treasury. Like just looking back over, and I could go on and on and on and on about his about his, his experience. But looking back throughout his his long and very distinguished career, he seems to have played the perfect game. He's used the support the supporting analogy. Like he he seems to have just always made the right decision at the right time. And moving from private sector to public sector to academia and back again taking on these these fantastic roles and always guiding them in the right way. So yeah, if, if you're asking you know, one one leader that I massively admire, well, it'd be, have to be Sir Andrew. Yeah. Now, if you and Sir Andrew were having a coffee on a park bench somewhere, whether it be Dublin, London, somewhere, wherever it was, <laughs> uh, yeah. what would be one question you would ask him? Yes. Well, I'd, thankfully, I've had the opportunity to do so. It is, as, <laughs> as you'll know yourself, as a, as a podcast host, I also have, have a podcast called Conversations on Climate, which is run with an association with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. And I sat down with Sir Andrew and I was able to, to ask the question that I wanted. And the question that I wanted was, you appear to have such good judgment. You appear to have to, to know how to call, the, call this game. What are the elements of your judgment, of your judgment framework? How do, you, how do you get it right so often? And he sat down and he, and he talked me through the, kind of the, the six elements of his judgment framework. Can run you through this if you if you, if if you like, but you might also also just wish to wish to kind of go across the bottom. Okay. Or you could tell in, us the in, episode number and people can go and listen to it. Yeah, it's episode episode three of season one of Conversations on Climate. <laughs> in in re- really kind of kind of broad brush terms, though, like uh, he's what he he kind of he says, look at your first one, understand the information that you have because there's always going to going to be blind spots on some of the information you have. Two is understand who you trust, so who you can be talking to, who you can be be bouncing the ideas off from. Three is. How experienced are you in dealing with something like this? If this is your first time, then this is very different than something you've done a hundred times. Forces, and this is really key, understand your feelings, your beliefs, your values, and your biases in, in relation to, to any, any decision. If you don't understand that, you run the risk of just, again, just making the assumptions. Fifth is pulling it all together is the process. It's weighing the, each factor appropriately and don't, not, not forgetting anything. And the last part is, is asking this question of, can you deliver it? And only at the end of that do you come up with your proper, your proper framework. We all have difficult choices to make. And in talking to Sir Andrew, he gave that really interesting way of making sure that you try and cover as many bases for those big decisions to give you the best chance of ultimately coming up with the right choice. Like, obviously, not, decisions are right or wrong only in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's a lot, a lot of luck comes into things. But if you can, and so a lot of bad decisions can turn out right because of luck. A lot of good decisions can turn out wrong because of luck. And you know, yeah. there's, there's some, something out of control. But at least, but going through, understanding the, all of those elements and making sure that you analyze them and think about them properly gives you the best chance of coming out with the right, with the right decision at the end of it.
I, I love it. Because, Chris, you see, I think that there's too many leaders who just react or they jump ahead with things mm. or they just go and do things. But I think what Sir Andrew was saying here is that the ability to step back and think, and maybe even critical thinking, but actually think through things and actually understand where you are with any one thing, and then you can decide and make an informed decision and move forward from there, I think is really, really important. The thing here I, say, I would say to your listeners is, write down those six things. If you have to rewind this episode, rewind it. But you know what? Those six things that Chris has just shared with us are really important things that he's learned from Sue Andrew because the thing is, the ability to be able to think and plan is huge. It's really big. It's really hard to put words to it. But we just know that those people that do do it actually do go ahead and succeed. At times they will fail or they'll learn a lot of things. But also, I think this is the big, big thing, they come across, there's this perception of being confident, of knowing, like you said, making the right decision all the time. It might be like the calm river. Down below, there's a whole lot of stuff happening. But at the end of the time, they know where they're going because they've actually taken time out to plan and, ha- and, and move forward, which is really important. And Chris, this is sort of leading me into the, into the next question here, because you and I are living in a world that's moving so fast. It's fast, ever-changing world. Whether it be data, technology, business, social, everything, climate, the whole lot. What does a leader need to do today to be successful in the world of this fast-changing pace, even more than what you've just shared about what Sue Andrew says? Is there anything else you want to share around that space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, I believe that the world, like yeah, the world is changing kind of rapidly around us, as you say. And there, there was too much focus kind of back in under recent years for kind of short-termist thinking. I like kind of going back to kind of like your, your Milton, Milton Friedman type philosophies in the world of maximizing shareholder value in the long run, sorry, in the short term was all that matters. I think there's an understanding now that's insufficient in this, in this complex world. And that's why, and a focus now on things like, as you're saying, like, you know, the environment, the society, you know, the social aspects and the economy, you need to put them all together for long-term sustainable success. And if you just you can throw just a little kind of, kind of statistic at you, like McKinsey recently did a study which said that if you are thinking across your kind of your triple bottom line type approach, that's kind of environment, so, so social economy, economy type matrix, and thinking for the long term, their study suggests that you can get a 47% outperformance in revenue, as opposed to just looking at your, as you're really your short term, your narrow, you know, maximizing your quarterly goals. And that, that was done over kind of 15 years. So it, like, it was a really kind of big and de- a detailed study with some, with some really interesting findings in there. Some of it is pretty obvious. If you're looking after like your employees, you're looking after your customers, you're looking after your, your suppliers, looking after your regulators. If everyone's happy with you, you've got a longer, you've got a longer lifespan. You know, your company's got a lifespan and like people are going to be more happy with, with dealing with you. If you, if you deal with what they care about, they're prepared to pay a premium. If you are avoiding the issues that they care about on the other side, they're not going to be boycotting you. Like again, another, another kind of another McKinsey study, like for instance, I said that 40% of all people in the US are currently boycotting something because they don't believe in one of their ESG principles, like environmental, social, or government principles. And that's, that's a lot of people boycotting a, a particular company because they, they, it doesn't fit within their belief system. And I think that's also kind of a modern thing as well. I think it's, it's, a, it's more of a, a millennium and Gen Z type mindset than it would be, would be of, you know, from our generation where people are more likely to be turning their back on a company or a business or like not take a job with them on the basis of something that is, you know, their own, their own moral beliefs. Now that's, a, I, I'm not sure that quite answered your question, but if the question is, how do you then work within that framework? 
Well, I do think you need to be, as your very first starting point is as a leader and as a looking after your company, you need to figure out what your purpose right. is. Like what makes you special? Yeah, what's, if you disappeared, what would people miss? That should be your kind of your strategic differentiating factor. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah? think it's great. Then after that, you have a look at these, these kind of the long-term factors, like your, your sustainability factors. What things, and actually, I think the ESG framework is kind of, is, is quite useful in this to kind of, to allow you to kind of to tick, to tick down through, through boxes. Like, first off, look and see, well, what will be tripping you up? So if you are, for example, like, you know, Nike was in the eighties using child labor in their, in the supply chain, you sort that out. You stop that right now, because that is something that if it becomes a big deal, it'll end you, you know, and you, you need, need to find, if you're polluting a local lake, well, the people that, you know, your, your local community will, will end you as well. That's it. But then you're trying to figure out the couple of things that you can really make a difference on that people can really get behind. So that, that fits in with your own special sauce of what, why you're still there. You then, then need to kind of to take those ideas and embed them into your organization. And to do that, you need to define them. You need to make sure they're measurable. You need to signal them to, to your employees, to celebrate the little wins. And only after you do all that, then do you talk about it to the mm -hmm. outside. You have like the idea of like a lot of people have just taken the idea that, oh, well, we're going to be all, all kind of sustainable. We're going to go to net zero, net zero next week, and we're going to be, to be saving the world. And they, they come out and make these big statements with no idea how they're going to get there. And, you know, next week they haven't gone to net zero and people are hammering yep. them. Really bad idea. Yeah. Figure out your game plan first, get it embedded, get your, your team to buy into it and make sure that your team is aligned with what you want to do and vice versa and, and, and mold it to the basis of what your team are saying. Cause it's, you know, again, you don't have all the answers and only then once it's embedded, do you then go out and talk out to the outside world about it. Really long answer. So I apologize. No, because <laughs> it's actually helped me answer a burning question that I've had that I wanted to ask you as soon as I knew you were going to be a guest on the, on the show. There is, you know, if you think about diversity and inclusion in a lot of organizations today, for a lot of organizations, that's just a tick in the box and that's all they do. And it's all lip service. I think climate change as well. I'm, I'm just seeing more and more organizations, and I think you alluded, it, alluded to it just before, a lot of them coming out and saying things and making announcements, but then they don't actually bring it to life or they don't actually live it. They don't actually walk the talk. Is that true in the sense what I'm thinking is that, that a lot of, lot of organizations are doing that? Uh, and if, if the CEOs and executives listening to this, this episode, what would be your one thing to say to them in the sense of, hey, you already need to get yourselves sorted, get your backyard sorted, your house sorted first before you start doing things. I think it's one thing you just said. But is there anything else? Because I think it is just a tick in the box exercise for a lot of organizations. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it was something that a lot of organizations did because they yeah. thought they should do it. So it, was, it became kind of, kind of cool and you needed to have your own, your own statements. But the problem is if you make these statements, people will hold them to you, hold you to them. So consumers will go and they'll say, hey, you said you do this and you haven't. And so they'll turn their back on you. Employees, like if employees can get really enthusiastic about missions, about purposes, particularly if they have been a part of the, the genesis of those purposes. But then if you're not delivering on them, they will turn on, they will turn on you and they'll leave. For long-term success, you need to have your purpose needs to be sincere. It needs to come from the heart and you need to be dedicated to it. If you don't do that, you will get caught out and you will lose out to people who mm. are sincere, who are in the same industry doing similar things, but they are sincere and people will flood to them as, as opposed to you. For your long-term success, long, for the long-term survival and good of your business on long-term valuation of the business, because all the business is, is so all the valuation of a business is, is the accumulation of its long-term cash flows discounted back to the value of today. The longer your long-term is, the higher your value is today. So if you think long-term, you try and be sustainable and you try and like be sincerely sustainable with sincere long-term strategic thinking 
that is the secret to a better value today. Good answer. I like it because I think there is just too many people because it is cool marketing stuff too, right? To be saying this kind of stuff. I, I like what you just shared there. Now, you and I have been talking through. One more thing. Just one more thing. The financial time. So for, for larger companies, just on the, the fact you'll be caught, the financial times are now tracking all kind of ESG type statements, particularly focusing, focusing on employment because it's the easiest one to measure. And they're putting out rankings and saying, well, this is what they said. This is, where they, this is, this is what they've done. And that is something that's just in blazing headlines out there that you can't just be talking rubbish. <laughs> if you say something, you need to go, go and deliver it and do it because people will find out it is possible to, to be finding it, to be looking at these things in public records and seeing yeah, how you what gets it. measured gets done. There's a, there's a terminology out there. And that's what my personal yeah. trainer keeps saying to me. But I think the thing here is that it's really important that, and I like it, Financial Times, well done. So leaders, you've been forewarned that, you know, you're, whatever you say, you will be, and it can be tracked. That's great. Now, Chris, you and I have been talking through the lens of leadership as we sort of bring things to a sort of an end in this episode. One thing is, let's talk about the lens from a, an employee's perspective. What mm. is their thoughts today? What, what are they, what are their expectations of leaders today? Yeah, I think we kind of, we, we started to touch on it a little earlier on, but we've got a, and you also mentioned technology and technology, obviously kind of AI is one of, is, is the big, the big you know, gorilla in the room. But if you look at it, we're currently projected to have an 85 million people skills gap by 20, by the year 2030. 85 million people is a lot of people for chat to GPT fill. <laughs> it really, really is. And also by the time you hit, you hit 2030, 70% of the people in the workforce will be millennials and Gen Zs. Millennials and Gen Zs are, have got a different philosophy in life to people from our own generation, <laughs> where it's, all the studies show that these groupings will, at 70% of them value purpose. They value going into work, feeling you know, impassioned by what they're trying to do. So that is something that you, know, you absolutely need to be focusing in on purpose, going back to, back to the forest, just about need to have a purpose, need to have something that is sincere because it is only sincere purpose is something that will keep people turning up, turning for the best selves. And also really interesting is that approximately the same number of, number of people, like in the kind of close enough 70% are willing to sacrifice pay for purpose. Now that's something that would be a complete anathema to us who are like raised in the eighties, <laughs> you know, where, you know, Gordon Gecko agrees is good, all this type of things, but it's this generation are to recruit, to retain, to motivate, and try and make sure that people turn up as the best sales. This is the, it's absolutely key that you need to have a purpose that you sincerely believe on, believe in, that you, that you report back to them on. That this is our big goal. But you then break it down into every six months, every 12 months, and you come back and you tell them. People are very forgiving. If you come and you say, we'll say, what, there's the goal. This is what we wanted to do, do at the end of the first year. We got 80% there, we got 90% there, we'll try and do, we'll try and do better. Then if you say, well, we're going to do something within, within 10 years and you don't tell them anything in the next, next, next three or four or five years, they get very frustrated. So reports, be sincere, work with them, but please give purpose, give, give sincerity, and you'll get people turning up as the best selves. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, those sort of those other sort of generations are looking for that purpose. I think when you and I were sort of growing and sort of developing in our careers and things like that. The one thing that used to they used to say to us that people will forgive their pay or money. The money wasn't the issue. Uh, the important thing was being recognised for what you did and recognition. If you got some recognition, people will go the extra mile and things like that. And and if they knew that you cared about them and so forth, that's pretty important. Now, I've got to get you to get your crystal ball out here and think about the future. Where do you see leadership being in five years? 
Yeah, it's really interesting because just going back to the kind of the factors we were just talking about where you've got the, the enormous skills gap of, you know, 85 million people, you've got uh, 70% of people being millennials and Gen Z. There's a lot of ways you could answer this question, but I think that leaders will be more focused in on kind of on things like, you know, as you already talked about, kind of ethical values and dr driven, driven long-term thinking. But I also think that things like emotional uh, intelligence and empathy will be increasingly important. It's like to be kind of genuinely a team member and kind of in some ways a father figure, mother figure, in some ways, ways of friends, trying to be understanding of your team, I think will be increasingly important. But even kind of more so, I think that systems thinking, where we're understanding that we're living in a world where it's interdependencies, uh, where we need to understand the kind of the broader context of, of the universe we're living in, again, will become increasingly important. And just to kind of lean back on that, could say, go back to Conversations on Climate, the podcast, season one, episode one uh, with Michael Jacobides, uh, another professor at London Business School. And he gives a brilliant talk on the importance of systems thinking and how, and how the world is changing from being kind of much larger kind of monolithic institutions where just, you're, you're just a part of this, uh, who can do anything, but to being a whole series of independent people or, or small groupings of people all working together in an ecosystem to try and try and achieve. Yeah, cool. So listeners, that podcast is called Conversations on Climate. Check it out. So yeah, and the thing here, Chris, is I, I love what you've been sharing today because it's sort of giving us more of a business perspective to climate change and climate side of things, as well as leadership, as well as people as employees and what they're expecting too. So thank you for joining me on today's session. Hey, if our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, please. Yeah, I was just say, can go on. The Conversations on Climate is, is primarily YouTube, but you can get it on um, iTunes or uh, Spotify or any of the other platforms. Uh, but best place to reach me personally is on LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Caldwell, C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L. -L. I think the, the link will be down in the, the description. And yeah, please hit me up. Uh, happy to have a chat about anything, you know, business leadership, sustainability, climate, you know, always, always happy to make new connections. Excellent. So listeners, we're going to put the, those details in the show notes. So once again, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, there you go, listeners. It's time for you now to think about whether you want to be a dictator or a leader. And the thing is, is that uh, how can you be the best self? How can you be the best leader that you can be and to help things? And think about the six different areas that uh, Chris shared about Sir Andrew as well. Hey, thanks for joining us on today's episode. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.